Hi, my name is Brad Zerbst. I played the medical technician on the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation, then transitioned behind the camera as a camera operator. You're listening to Trek Untold. to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I am your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week's guest is one whose time in the franchise was not necessarily the most visible, but his story after his time in Trek is what I was really fascinated in hearing all about. Brad Zerbst appeared a handful of times in the first season of Star Trek Next Generation, typically wearing a blue medical uniform. If you're eagle-eyed, you can spot him in Justice, Heart of Glory, and Skin of Evil, which is probably his biggest on-camera appearance in the show. Brad did some roles in some other shows and films we're going to discuss today, but early into his acting career, he transitioned from being in front of the camera to being behind it. Literally. Since his TNG days, Brad has become an award-winning camera operator, known primarily for his work on talk shows and reality TV, as well as time spent on sitcoms and dramas. And we're talking about things like Survivor, Big Brother, The West Wing, Will and Grace, The Ellen DeGeneres Show, Wheel of Fortune, and one of my all-time personal favorites, Whose Line Is It Anyway? These days, he's been working on a show with a pretty massive Star Trek connection, but we're going to get to that a little bit later on. Brad's Starfleet career wasn't the most notable, but what he does today is very, very cool, and a job that I think a lot of us viewers take for granted. It goes without saying that without a camera operator, we wouldn't be able to see anything. That's pretty obvious. But this job requires a lot of skills, timing, and awareness that is highly underappreciated by the average TV watcher, and when done right, their work seamlessly pulls you into what's happening on screen, boosting the performances of whoever is in front of that camera. I'm very excited to bring this chat with you today and show a side of TV production you've probably never given too much thought to before, but after this episode, I'm pretty sure you'll think twice about the way you watch your shows. So let's pull focus on Brad Zerbst and learn all about his journey through Trek and going warp speed behind the lens. But before we get into this week's episode, I have to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media yet? You can find us over on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, all at Trek Untold, one word with no spaces. You can also become a Patreon supporter for this podcast over at patreon.com slash trekuntold. Here, you can directly contribute to keeping this show running at full power for as low as a few bucks a month. If you do this, you'll have early access to new episodes, the ability to ask future guests questions, check out exclusive merchandise, and other special benefits. We've also got an official merch store and an Amazon store filled with Star Trek goodies. So if you want to rock a Trek Untold t-shirt to the next con you're going to, or order something Star Trek related for yourself or someone else, please use the links in the show notes to help us help you. Shout out to our show sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, makers of fine 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and accessories for collectors of all kinds. But you'll hear more about them later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And now join me on the other side of the screen. Let me welcome to Trek Untold, Mr. Brad Zerbst. Brad, how's it going today? 
Matthew, doing well. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for coming by today. You know, you've got a pretty unique road through Hollywood that brought you to where you are today. And Star Trek was really very much part of your origin story. And it's very different from what you're up to these days. So uh, I'm excited to chat with you and uh, learn a little bit more about what you're doing. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a winding road through Hollywood for me. But (laughs) it's clearly been a pretty good one because I'm seeing what's behind your head right now. And I'm like, all right, well, clearly this man knows what he's doing. (laughs) Well, they impress the neighbors. All right. Well, well, Brad, let's kick things off here with the first question that I like to ask all my guests. Uh, and that's, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Were you a fan of the show at all before? My earliest memory of Star Trek, actually the show, the original Star Trek aired when I was nine years old and we watched it every week. My dad, myself, and my two younger brothers, I was the oldest. So I was nine, I think, when it premiered. So huge fan of the show. And then a little later on in life, the reruns would run all summer long. So every day there was a Star Trek episode on every day. And so all the kids playing in the neighborhood would stop playing and go inside, watch Star Trek, and then go back outside and play. I grew up in Mesa, Arizona. Um, So huge fan of the show. Always was a huge fan of the show. Even to the point that uh, one of the neighbor's kids had a, I believe it was probably like a Super 8 film camera and we started making our own star trek episodes to the point that actually got in the transporter room we would stand there stop the camera get out start the camera and he would he would scratch the negative of the the film after it was developed so it would it it looked you know it looked like we had transported somewhere but you know we were 11 and <laughs> 12 so I've always been a fan of the show. Yeah, that's pretty great. That's some pretty hardcore stuff. And by the way, I have to ask, uh, who did you play when you were making those videos? You know what? Uh, probably a guy in a red shirt. I mean, we were all just, you know, no specific, you know, person, but we were just on Star Trek, you know, so. <laughs> that's really cool. That's that's fun to do. Uh, and yeah. you kind of already answered like one part of my next question, which is going to be where you grew up. So now we know it's Arizona. Uh, but can you tell us about your parents and what they did and uh, what little Brad wanted to be when he grew up? Much like anyone who's the son of a doctor of microbiology and a machinist, uh, I wanted to be an actor <laughs> and go into theater. And, of course, uh, logical. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've got uh, two brothers who are artists and I was an actor and mom was a doctor of microbiology. So, you know, they transferred. And wanted to do it early on and did in children's theater and then in, you know, junior high and high school, you know, and uh, was always kind of on that path. So how did you find your way from Arizona into L.A.? Was there a journey there to get there or a roundabout way? Went to uh, college, Arizona State for theater, theater major. And from there went to acting conservatory in California, Pacific Conservatory Performing Arts, Santa Maria. So moved from Phoenix to Santa Maria and uh, at PCPA, which uh, the alum, the Star Trek alumni that came out of PCPA is, you know, vast. I could go down the list, but, uh, and just started doing theater. I I was uh, primarily in theater. I wanted to be in theater. And uh, from there, did theater up and down the coast, uh, ended up at uh, a, a repertory theater in Costa Mesa, South Coast Repertory uh, Theater, South Coast Rep, 
And um, another friend of mine, uh, actor, uh, said, hey, uh, I have an agent and he wants to see you. And I'm like, sure, you know. And I had done some television stuff in Arizona when I was in college. Um, production assistant on Star is Born, the Star- Barbra Streisand movie. And so, you know, had done some background stuff on that. Had done a couple of national commercials while I was there. Had an agent in Arizona. And then when I went off to school, I, you know, dropped the whole thing. Uh, and uh, he signed me and I started doing some television stuff and, and did, did, all, did all right in the mid-80s, you know. And then that's how I ended up here. Well, you can't leave that thread dangling. You got to tell me more about being a PA on A Star is Born. I mean, uh, what, what part did you work on? They shot the concert scenes, the indoor and outdoor concert scenes at Arizona State University. One was in the, the outdoor was in the stadium at Arizona State University. The indoor was at Grady Gamage Auditorium. So all of her concert scenes, the big ones outside, the ones inside, and they were looking for people, you know, and I was in the theater department. So I, of course, jumped on it. And uh, it was doing exactly what you think a PA would do, you know, go get uh, whatever. Matter of fact, when I first moved to California to go to PCPA, I moved out in um, the summer. I was starting in the fall because I had friends that had moved to Hollywood. So I thought, move to Hollywood, hang out. As soon as I get to Hollywood, a friend of mine says, hey, I have friends at Universal and they're starting a picture and they're looking for PAs and I think you would be good for it. I'm going to send you over there and give them your name because you've got experience being a PA. I've done one PA job on a film. But um, so I went and I met with the man at Universal. After talking to him, he said, I, I think you're going to be great for this film. You know, when can you start? And I said, well, I've only been here two days, but I can start tomorrow. And he said, great, Um, we're here for a week, and then we go on location for two months. Sounds great. I want to introduce you to some people. They're going to want to get to know you. He opens up the door. The film is called Used Cars. I don't know if you know it. Directed by Robert Zemeckis. Starred Kurt Russell, Garrett Graham, Jack Warner. And they're all in a room and they're doing a table read. And this guy introduces me to all of them. Like, he's going to be a PA with us, get to know his face. And they're like, hey. And I'm like, oh, okay, hi. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we go back to his office and great. I said, oh, by the way, where are we shooting this film? And he said, oh, Mesa, Arizona. <laughs> really? So I was in California for a week. And then I moved back for two months to Mesa, Arizona. <laughs> I'm sure your parents back. were thrilled to see you again. Yeah, I was like, hey, I'm back. Like, yeah. <laughs> wow. So I just went home and worked in the set and, you know, but it was it was a great experience. A lot of anyway. That that is a true Hollywood story right there. <laughs> yeah. So that was my first foray to for foray to California that took me right back home, but <laughs> But I read on uh, IMDb that your very first gig was Starman. Is that correct? Uh, on-screen television gig? I think the first on-screen television was actually Murder, She Wrote. Oh, okay. Even better. Because I always ask about Murder, She Wrote on this show. And in fact, I was going to get to that. So, uh, yeah, you know, we, we talk about that show all the time because so many folks who cross into Trek also dip their toes into Murder, She Wrote. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah. A lot. Actually, you'd be surprised if you didn't know. It's it's so many. And most I'd say more than half the guests on this show I talked about murder she wrote uh so i'd love to hear if you have any stories about angela lansbury and just what your time was on that show 
to to be honest, um, I had two scenes and I never met her. Hmm. Yeah, I played. Uh, do you remember Barry Williams, who was Greg Brady on the Brady Bunch? Yeah, yeah, I played one of his friends in a bar, and he's the, you know, the kind of antagonist who ends up dead. So there were two scenes with him and uh, Doug McClure and all of these people in in a bar, but. I I never actually got to meet her, which I I felt bad about, but but I really would love to have met her, but I didn't. So, so, but it was fun and interesting, you know, because it, 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 well, you know, Murder, She Wrote was kind of like Love Boat. It was like, you know, known person, known person, known person, known person, me, known person. It's like, why am I here? But it was good, good uh, entrance into the television world. Yeah. So I guess now, Brad, the million-dollar question is, how did you end up in Star Trek? Because I know this ah. is fairly early on in your career as well. So, uh, you know, were you auditioning for a certain part in the first season, or were you just meant to be an ambient performer? Because you're there in season one. So, you know, how did this yeah. all come together? What did you even know about the show in the first place? Well, first off, I, I had heard that they were making a new Star Trek, so I was excited about that. I was like, oh, this can be fun to watch. I had actually, you know, done a lot of Highway to Heaven designing women, those type of shows. And and it was actually at a theater workshop where you they basically have an open forum workshop where you come in and do a classical piece and a contemporary piece. And there's a bunch of casting agents. So it's a showcase type of thing. But in that audience was a woman named Alyssa Goodman, who was one of the casting directors of Star Trek. And she got in touch with me because she had my picture and resume and said, would you like to read for the pilot of the new Star Trek? And I'm like, sure. So uh called my agent and, and they set it up and I read for the pilot. And uh, it was, um, it's hard to remember so long ago, but it was engineering. Some engineering, I don't, I can't even remember now, but um, they're like, yeah, great. Okay, good. You know, we'd love to have you. And then I got a call about a week later that uh, that they had rewritten the pilot. This was very, very early on. They had rewritten the pilot, and those scenes were no longer in the show. And I said, thank you very much. I'm just really excited about the show, looking forward to uh, watching it. And they said, great. And I guess it was probably maybe a month later that I got a call once again from Star Trek office uh, saying, we have the part of a medical technician. And it'll be kind of a recurring role. And I said, great. When do you want me to come in to read for it? And they said, no, we're offering you the part. We need you to come in for a costume fitting. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I went over to Paramount and that's how it started. You got yourself your very first blue uniform. And, uh, you know, again, keep in mind, this is first season of TNG here. So no one's ever seen any of this stuff before. You're walking in now as a new performer. So talk to me about seeing the uniforms and also wearing that uniform and also just seeing the set for the first time, because this is not your original 60s Star Trek. This is a different era. It's a completely different era. Well, first off, let's talk about the uniform, because uh, there's there's certain things you want to do before you put the uniform on, because getting into it and getting out of it. It's like, you don't like, oh, let me run to the bathroom. <laughs> I'll be back in 30 minutes. You know, it snaps here and there's an invisible zipper here. And then you kind of have to crawl out of it. And, you know, 
Interesting. And the, the thing that I found funny was the, the, the emblem, you know, the, right. They actually Velcroed onto the uniform and they were so kind of secretive and everything else that when you walked on the prop guy, put it on you. And then it's like cut as you leave, he goes, give me that. And they take it off <laughs> and they held onto him, you know, cause that could easily just walk away, which, you know, so they're like, no, we, we're holding onto those. We'll keep those. So, but it was so cool to be in this uniform and realize that you're on the set of Star Trek, the next generation, but it's still Star Trek. So first day, got there early, wanted to nose around. <laughs> so got there early, went to wardrobe, went to makeup. The only only makeup I had, poor Michael Dorn was in there for like hours. Only thing I had was these little sideburns that glue on you, you know, just, you know. But it was uh, Mr. Westmore, and he was a great guy talking to him. So the first thing I did was just kind of sneak around the set. So you go into the transporter room and you stand on the little pad, you know, you go to the bridge, you know, do your thing. I was in sickbay the whole time, but you just kind of explore the set, you know, and walk the hallways. And it's like, it's like a kid's dream come true, you know, to be on the set of Star Trek, you know, and uh, it was just so cool. Everything was awesome. Now you said you're walking around the sets and trying things out, whatever, but did you sit in the captain's chair? You know, I didn't really have the nerve to sit in the captain's chair. I think I did sit in like, you know, the navigator's chair and walk around the back, but I, you know, I didn't sit in the captain's chair, you know. I mean, don't feel That's, too ashamed about that, honestly, because so many guests I've talked to, I asked similar questions and very, very few of them had the nerve to sit in that chair. Really? Oh, yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. There should be like a support group for actors who appear on Star Trek who didn't sit in the chair. There should be, yeah. <laughs> However, when you when when you did walk in and out of the uh, out of the, uh, the the you know the uh, you did go shh, make the sound shh. <laughs> into the turbo lifts, yeah. <laughs> now uh, this is super granular stuff out there, and this is going to be only a certain group of fans that are going to want to know this. But I am curious myself. Uh, did your character actually have a name? Oddly enough, it was medical technician. It did okay. not. It did not have a name. And uh, the I did get a brief meeting uh, with Gene Roddenberry, who uh, I introduced myself and he said, nice to meet you and everything else. And I said, I don't have a name. <laughs> and he goes, well, we might have to work on that. I said, I hear Chapel is a good name. <laughs> he just laughed and walked away. So <laughs> well, That's um, fun. You got to have your moment with the great bird of the galaxy. That's pretty cool. Yeah, he, he, he very nice man. He was he was. Very nice. So it was it was just such an honor to get to even briefly meet him as he was, you know, walking through the set, you know, so. And everyone on there just as nice as they could be. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, 
or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the US, with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay what you want section where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter Untold10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using Untold10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Hey, I'm Licia Nav, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG. And now, Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebydogooders.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row, and from our car windows, we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream cheese, socks, tarps, masks, T-shirts, things to keep people warm. So we just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein, and a way to clean themselves, especially during corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly who have a really hard time getting to services. And we do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% tax deductible. And if you click on the donate button, you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autograph picture of either the Star Trek The Next Generation or Lower Decks or Total Recall, where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars, and uh, that's the X-rated version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write, and I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydogooders.org. Ensign, I mean, Captain Sonia Gomez, signing off. Now, a majority of her scenes would have been with Gates McFadden, since she's the chief medical officer aboard the Enterprise D. Uh, so how did you like spending some time with her? How did you like working with her? She was great. She was she was awesome. I mean, she was so, like, just open and giving and, and easygoing. I mean, it was so much fun to work with her. And I think the first week she said, she said, why don't you come to my trailer and we can run lines. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. You know, I thought we just walked on the set and had to say it. So went to her trailer and sat there and, you know, went through the scene ourselves. And then of course you worked with the director later on and, and um, yeah, she was, she was awesome. Did you have a chance to hang out much with any other cast members? I know you're, you're pretty much in sick bay, like you said, but did you get to interact with anybody else in the main crew? Uh, yeah. A couple of times there was uh one time it was uh I think we were shooting Skin of Evil, the episode where Tasha Yar, you know, her last. And uh, we, we break for lunch and uh, Brent says, hey, do you want to come to lunch with us? And I'm like, sure. So we go to the commissary there at Paramount and it's Denise, myself, 
Brent, one other person, I can't remember who, but sat there having lunch with Brent in a white t-shirt, but <laughs> still had the up and the green contacts in. And it was like, this is a little strange, but, <laughs> but yeah, I'm a little bit. And um, it was fun. Now, again, as we mentioned, this is season one of TNG. This is the brand new Star Trek show. And at this point, all these actors are really, you know, they don't quite have the camaraderie they're going to have by season seven. So how would you describe the feeling on set for the episodes you were there being shot? Or is everybody like trying to figure out their way still? Is everybody kind of comfy already? Uh, and I've heard stories of Patrick Stewart, you know, being pretty tight as far as like not being the most smiley, happy person who's very professional. Uh, what did you see? What was the feeling you felt on that set? Um the one time that I was in a scene with Patrick Stewart, uh, he he got caught in traffic and he was late to the set. So he was a little frazzled and um, apologetic to all of us. You know, I'm so sorry, traffic, you know, everything else. Um, he was very professional, as you would expect him to be. but. Later on, I heard he was also very funny. I mean, he had a very dry sense of humor, but, but you know, very witty, as you would expect him to be. Um, we got jackets from that first season, cast and crew jackets, and they had just given them out. And uh, I still have it. It's... um. Uh, they were uh, burgundy and embroidered and, and the sleeves zipped off and they were kind of vinyl, but they were very short waisted. Mm. So they're like, okay. And he put it on and he goes, well, I guess Boleros will come back. Cause this was like way up here. <laughs> it, like, you know, I'm a matador maybe, I don't know, but, but he was, he was, he was, I found him nice. He was just, you know, a little intimidating for me. It's, you know, it's Patrick Stewart and Jonathan Frakes and, you know, they were all great though. They were all very, very nice. You know, now from a fan's perspective, cause you grew up watching the show and enjoying it so much, you know, from a fan's perspective, were you privy to seeing anything that kind of surprised you about the new Star Trek? Not so much in season one, because like you said, they were kind of finding their way. So, so uh, season one is a completely different show than, later on down the line, you know? So it was pretty true to form. I felt mm. except for, you know, they have a relationship with Klingons and, you know, you know, that type of thing. So you hadn't seen Borg or any of that stuff yet. So no, not yeah. quite yet. So let's talk about a pretty important episode though, in that very first season that you were in, and we already mentioned the name of it. That's skin of evil. Uh, okay. And that's the episode where Tosh Yar is killed off. So, I'm curious to know, uh, let's kind of just start, I guess, about some of the history in this particular episode here. So I'm curious if you heard any of the rumblings about what was going on behind the scenes with Denise Crosby and why she was leaving the show. And likewise, if you had heard anything with Gates McFadden and, you know, her potentially leaving the show in that first season. Um, so we'll, we'll just start there. Were you privy to hearing any of those rumors? Uh, I wasn't really privy to hearing rumors about Gates, but. Did kind of hear that Denise had wanted to have a feature film career and move on. And I mean, that was kind of discussed when we had lunch that day and, uh, you know, wishing her luck. And, you know, it was literally one of her, you know, last, it was her last week on the show. So that's all I had really heard that she wanted to go on to 
feature film career and all of that, but that's the only rumblings or, or rumor I had heard. Um, and then I was surprised that, you know, Gates was leave. And then she did subsequently after that, but came back. Right. Yeah. 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 So, but I hadn't really heard anything. No, it was just cool to be there, you know, so, and work with them, you know, and that scene where we're trying to save her and, and, uh, you know, they, they turn the cameras around and you have a close up and usually the camera's just on you. And, and, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I've got I'm lines with Gates, but Denise said, I'm going to lay here so you have me to focus on. Is that okay? And I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Usually they get up and go to the trailer, but, but she stayed on the table when, you know, so I had her to play off of and stuff, which was, I thought really sweet, mm-hmm. you know, but they were just really great to work with all of them, you know, even though I get a lot of one word lines in that episode that friends of mine still to this day will see me and go direct. <laughs> because when you have the one word line, it's like, yeah, okay, I don't know what you do with that, but okay. Yeah. Direct. Yeah. So just a little trivia fact, by the way, too, Brad, I don't know if you are aware. Uh, so skin of evil is actually not the final episode that they film chronologically with Denise Crosby. The final, final one that she filmed, even though she died in that one, uh, was actually symbiosis. And if you want to be like a super duper Trek nerd, go back and watch symbiosis and watch all the way to the end. And you'll actually see her in this final scene where she's in the cargo bay. And she actually waves to the camera as, as the camera's pulling out. Really? Yeah. So oh. that's your homework today is go and watch Symbiosis and you'll see her actual final, final appearance. <laughs> now I got it. Now I have to go find it. That's but it cool. is really cool that you were there in that scene because I actually talked to Gates McFadden and, and I asked her about that scene because, you know, rewatching it, I always felt like the way that like when Gates pronounces that, uh, you know, Tashi R is dead, it, it felt really real to me and almost felt like, you know, Gates was, was also recognizing something in her about the fact that, like, you know, Denise went through this stuff. I'm going through this stuff, too. So I'm curious, you know, as you're there for that scene being filmed and now Denise is on the table with you, which I never knew. Uh, I mean, what was your feeling about that particular scene and knowing that, you know, Denise was leaving and Gates would also be leaving not too long after? It it, it definitely added to the scene that that you the, the finality of it, you know, the and I thought Gates was incredible in that scene. You know, I mean, I was I was all right, but Gates was great. And Denise was, too, you know, being there. And you're right, though. I mean, also in the room were uh, Patrick and Jonathan. So just the whole timber of the room was somber in that in that instance that, you know, this is her final, you know, even though she said goodbye on the holodeck later, you know, but yeah, it was it it was. um, I don't know what else to say. It was just somber. Now, beyond the stuff we've already talked about, do you have any memories from your time on board the Enterprise that kind of stick out in your mind? Probably the Klingon death howl. Oh, you were there for that, too. <laughs> yeah, when the uh, the three Klingons, I, I can't even remember the storyline now. They were on the ship, and the one was injured, and we try and save him, and and uh, he doesn't make it. Worf and the other Klingons hold his eyes open and do that that howl when we're like, okay, that's interesting. That was, that was fun. <laughs> uh, another episode I'm, I'm data gets injured mm-hmm. and he's Bay and I have a scanner and I'm scanning him and Gates comes in and I said, he's checking out fine. And I'm thinking, well, does this work on him? Cause, but I guess it does. So 
<laughs> That's a true Trek nerd right there, asking the hard questions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, for the sake of also completion, too, I, I believe that like IMDb Memory Alpha has you for three episodes. Uh, but is that accurate? Were you there for three, or was it more? Uh no, it was three. Okay, it was yeah. And then I went off and did something else, and then Gates left, and they kind of went in a different direction. And then I did, I you know, at that point, I never came back. But it was just such an honor to be there, you know. And be part of it, you know. It's it's been so long ago that I I don't even think about it anymore. But apparently, other people do. <laughs> so, <laughs> like yeah. yourself, Trekkies never forget. That's what we do. <laughs> so, Brad, after your guest appearances on Star Trek and a few other roles here and there as well, you started to transition behind the scenes. Uh, I'd love to learn a little bit more about what the impetus was for that transition. Well, I had. Like I had said, in theater, the, the conservatories and everything I went to, they taught you all aspects. You weren't just an acting student. You learned how to build scenery and how to do lighting and, and so costumes and theater management. It was a theater, as, as the director said, it's a theater school, not an acting school. It's a real complete practical kind of course. Complete. So whatever you do. So as a young actor... In Hollywood, instead of working, working as a waiter, which a lot of people do, and all this type of stuff to make money, I found a way to start doing lighting calls and doing lighting for concerts and that type of stuff. I ended up working uh, for Disney, believe it or not, and doing shows for them in the lighting. Uh, photography had always been a hobby of mine. Even, you know, as a kid, you know, uh, in, in high school and a little bit in college, I had my own dark room and I would, I would do headshots for other, other actors and, and photography was a hobby. So I always had an interest in it. I worked for Disney for a while. And then, uh, I remember when I was doing Highway to Heaven, I, I had done an episode of Highway to Heaven and Michael Landon, like Michael Landon, God rest his soul, um, asked me what I was doing. And I said, you know, I'm just doing these lighting calls and everything else. And he, he himself offered me a job as a, as a PA. I ended up doing three episodes, three different episodes of Highway to Heaven, playing three different characters over a year and a half. So he would like say, Tay Tuesday, the part of the waiter. I'm okay, thanks. And uh, I would sign myself out and go back to being a PA. And he had said, as a young actor, I made sure that I learned all aspects of the business. I learned how to do the lighting. I knew what a grip did. I knew what a camera operator did. I knew what the wardrobe people did as when he was on Bonanza. And a lot of those same crew people were with him on Little House on the Prairie and were still with him on Highway to Heaven. He had said to learn all aspects of the business. So I started talking to the camera guys because I loved, you know, the cameras and everything else and started talking with them. And so I had kind of developed an interest in it. Well, when I was working for Disney, uh, there was, um, I can't even remember what the concert was. And one of the camera operators, uh, either got in a car accident or got sick suddenly. And, and so the director said, how do you feel about doing a handheld camera just on stage? Just do your best, you know? And I'm like, I've never done it before. And he goes, well, just give it a try. 
And so I grabbed the camera and just thought, well, I'm going to have fun with it. And uh, at the end of the night, he walked up and he said, okay, you're a camera operator now. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, because that was a lot of fun. And the one thing kind of led to another and it just kind of took over. Uh, I unfortunately got in an accident and ended up injuring my knee. So the acting kind of had to be put on the side for six, eight months while, you know, I had a Don Joy brace from my hip to my ankle and knee surgery and crutches and walked with a limp. And uh, so, but after that, I, I mean, I started getting calls from people saying, Hey, are you available to do this? And so I met a lot of a team camera operators in Hollywood that are like, Hey, you should, you should do this. And I, I found it so enjoyable that I just kind of thought, well, I'll do this for a while. I'll stick with this for a while. I'll, and it just took over. And, you know, 30 years later, here we are. A good camera operator is vital for any TV show, but especially things like talk shows, like live uh, sports events. Um, there's, there's all sorts of reasons why, but even for a show like Star Trek, the next generation, the camera people, extremely, extremely important. So what are some of the things that you've learned in this field that you initially took for granted as a viewer and are things that made you the camera person that you are today? I think as a viewer and, and, and if the camera work is good, it's seamless. You, you are unaware of the fact that someone's standing there operating at a camera. It, you know, it, it, it adds to the narrative and it adds to the story doesn't take away from it you learn how much work it truly is you know uh, how much work goes into it and long hours and 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 the craft of it the interesting thing about being in front of the camera is that it helps so much when you're behind the camera knowing what that experience is on that side of the camera and it 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 helps create it creatively to it's almost like you're a part of it on some shows you know talk shows are pretty formulaic you know everyone has their you know zones and and uh i've done a lot of mostly live television mostly a lot of live music and award shows and that type of thing a lot of live television and uh i i, I like the live aspect of it because you have to it heightens your game it's much like doing theater you know you go out there and it's it's organic and it happens and and every night it's different with live television whatever happens happens and you have to be able to ad lib and roll with it and go with it because something invariably goes wrong but if it's live in front of millions of people you just kind of have to go with it you know so it's that 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 thrill of it that that same feeling you get from doing theater you get from doing live television even behind the camera yeah i never really thought of it that way but that actually really does make perfect sense and you know talking about the live events as well some of the award shows you have done have included the emmys we're talking the oscars grammys golden globes right uh and that's got to be i feel pretty nerve-wracking because those are big big shows you got millions of people tuning in and you're the guy making sure they see whatever that important thing is that needs to be seen a scene <laughs> so uh yeah talk to me about working on some of those shows well yeah and and Let's let's take the Grammys, for instance. Uh, you're rehearsing that show for six days before that Sunday or sometimes Monday. So it's like boot camp. By the time you actually get to it, everything, you know, 
hopefully goes as planned, but you've been living with, you know, and done several dress rehearsals and, and everybody kind of knows their place and goes with it. It's definitely an, an energy that, uh, you know, it's, it's almost addictive sometimes, you know, when, uh, once, once you get through it and it's a cl- good, clean show and it's exciting and, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's addictive. <laughs> One of your earlier gigs that you worked on was Saved by the Bell, the new class. And believe it or not, Brad, I've actually had someone else in this podcast who was part of that show. Uh, his name was Tim Lunabus. He appeared in a few episodes there. Uh, so I'm curious if you have any memories from your time behind the camera on Saved by the Bell, the new class, which is, I know, such a weird thing to ask about, but I grew up with it. So I'm always interested in hearing stories about it. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it was fun. I I actually did several shows for Peter Engel, who was the creator. and uh, and um, we I did uh, Say by the Bell, the new class, and then there was Hang Time. I don't know if you remember that show. California Dreams, the Peter Engel sitcoms. I mean, there was a definite formula to them. It was just great to because I remember the original Say by the Bell. I didn't work on that, but it was just fun to 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 be around them. It, you know, it was a good camaraderie with the cast. I remember that the you know the cast and crew, everybody got along like a big family and could joke around and have fun and you know you you could play practical jokes on Dustin Diamond and and uh um <clears throat> the man who played uh Principal Belding he was very particular about almost OCD about his desk on the set there had to be five pencils arranged in a certain way in a cup on the desk and he would make sure that they were arranged just like that and so Consequently, someone would always distract him and remove a pencil or move a pencil, and they'd go, "Okay, here we go." In three, two, he wait. <laughs> he would notice that the pencils were. It was you know that type of thing. Um, but everyone was great to work on. You know, it, it was a lot of fun. It was taped in front of a live audience, and uh, the live audience were saved, saved by the bell, the new class, and hang time. Uh, were young teenage girls for the most part that if you've never heard an audience of young teenage girls, it's uh, you could almost weaponize that and uh, <laughs> it's very loud, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. The true whale of the Banshee right there. The true uh, whale of the Banshee. Yeah. Hey everybody. We'll get right back to the interview in one second, but I wanted to remind you all to check out Trek Untold over at Patreon. Patreon is the best way to directly support creators of things you like through a monthly subscription of an amount that you can choose. Trek Untold has a few different tiers already with different benefits, ranging from early access to episodes, the ability to ask a future guest questions, exclusive merchandise, and other bonuses that I'd love to offer, but first I need to grow that Patreon community to do that. Trek Untold has been around since mid-2020 and has grown a ton since then, thanks to listeners and viewers like you. Through a platform like Patreon, you can help me keep improving the quality of each episode and keep bringing you new interviews with folks that make the Star Trek universe what it is. If this community can grow more over on Patreon, I can offer new perks like watch parties, exclusive Trek Untold episodes, being able to directly interact with guests, and other things, but in order to do that, I need to know my audience wants these things. The best way to tell me what you want is by supporting us on Patreon, so please, Check us out at patreon.com slash trekuntold today and become a bigger part of the Trek Untold family. And now, back to the interview. 
So, Brad, you know, Star Trek obviously is one of my favorite things here. I got a whole podcast based around it. But one of my other favorite shows and has been since geez, I don't even know when uh, it's whose line is it anyway? And you were a camera operator for the both really both the American versions, the original American version and the current version with Aisha Tyler hosting. I watch it all the time. Like, no joke. I watch it. No matter what channel it's on TV, I'm tuning in. No matter how late it is, I'm watching it. I know the show like the back of my hand, probably better than I know Star Trek. Uh, really? I am okay. a hardcore fan, and I would just love to hear about your time working on that set, because I know that was a wild set to be a camera guy on. It, well, yeah, you want to talk about not knowing what's going on. <laughs> um, it was so much fun. It's the only show where it's like you find yourself watching the show and you're like, oh, no, no, wait, I'm working, you know, because they were just so good. All of them. I was actually a camera operator on the British version when they brought the British version here with their presenter and and but in the British cast were Colin and Ryan, Colin and Ryan, and sometimes Brad and sometimes Greg Proust. They were in the British version. Ryan, it was actually Ryan Stiles who said, you know, this would play very well here and pitched it to Warner Brothers. And they actually talked to Drew about hosting it. And so that's when the American version came out. I was I was there, you know, from from the get go. And it was interesting to see the difference between the British version and the American version, because, well, when you add Drew and then you know you've got those guys though and the way they shot the show i don't know if you know this but the way they shot the show is we would start the show you know hey welcome to whose line is anyway you know da, 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 da. And he would come down and they'd go into the first game and then we would just play game after game after game after game after game while dan patterson the executive producer was over there scribbling on his notepad and then about five hours later do the mid show breaks, the end of the show where they read credits. And then he wanted to do pickups. Let's do the end of this game going into the mid show break. Let's do the end of this. And Ryan styles would always be like, um, you know, we make this stuff up, right? You know, how are we going to, but well, you were here and you were here and you were saying something about, and they'd be like, okay. And as the night wore on, and a and, and normal, like Friday, Saturday, Sunday was the tapings. A normal Friday, it would easily be an eight-hour taping after we had been there. So they were 12 and 14-hour days for us. Mm. You could see Ryan getting gradually more and more annoyed with Dan Patterson. And, and Drew had actually said to me one time, he goes, you know, nothing's funnier than Ryan Stiles pissed off. <laughs> and I said, I <laughs> I can remember one night in particular, and I might be talking out of school, and you can cut this out if you want. Um, I won't. They, I, I know you won't. <laughs> um, they had to do helping hands, where you know Ryan is Colin's hands. Poor Colin. And poor Colin. He he's he's the sweetest man in the world. Um, and they had full pies that he eventually gets. And so Dan Patterson is over there. He always had the same green blazer on and the black T-shirt he wore every taping. He's over there and he goes, okay, coming out of helping hands was set up helping hands. So the prop people have to come back out and set all of it up and everything else. And they set up the pie. 
and and Dan Patterson's talking to the audience. So we're going to do a pickup of helping. Hand. And Ryan picked up the pie, walked behind him, and hit him in the face with the pie, and walked away. <laughs> and we're all like, "Oh my god!" And uh, Dan Patterson, who's got a face full of whipped cream now, just goes, "Yes, yes, very good, very funny." So we'll pick up from. <laughs> <laughs> And Ryan's like, oh, I give up. So <laughs> it was a lot of fun. So man, no soul to pie to the face. That's just the antithesis of comedy right there. <laughs> yeah. It's like the ultimate, you know, it was just so much fun to work, work on. And it was interesting to see the, the growth of everyone on that show too. Now, Ryan and Colin had been doing that type of improv. They kind of grew up together. They had, They've known each other since they were teenagers. So the two of them, there's this kind of symbiotic, unspoken. They, the other, they, one knows what the other one's going to say long before they say it. And they're so good. I remember there was one season where the production office, uh, once again, Dan Patterson said, we got a call in the production office. And it was Robin Williams, and he wants to be on the show. Great. So they he freed up in his schedule that uh, Robin Williams could be on the show. And you're thinking, oh, my God, Robin Williams. I can't wait to see Colin and Ryan and Robin Williams. And Colin and Ryan just obliterated him. He just he, – he, at one point, he's like, ah, if you could make Robin Williams speechless <laughs> – and he, Robin Williams is is sweating and work and they're cool as a cucumber and they're just you know it's uh, the other thing about that show is it was obviously taped uh, on ABC. It's too bad that it couldn't have been on cable because it would have been a completely different show. And uh, I took great joy. There was a woman named uh, Susan Futterman who was the standards and practice for ABC who was in the booth and. Uh, some of the stuff that came out of the mouths of wouldn't have been appropriate on ABC. And you could hear her going, no, in the booth. And it's, well, it's not going to make air, but one would start. And then it's like, okay, the next 30 minutes, we'll never see the light of day, but it'll be the funniest television you've ever seen. You know, I, I remember uh, uh, Brad Truitt. It was the first game right out of the gate. It's like a Saturday night. And it's scenes from a hat. Drew pulls something out and Brad stands up and walks out and says what he says. And the whole crowd just goes, oh, my God. And you can see the others go, all right, here we go. <laughs> so for now, now they're going to try and top each other for the next 30 minutes. Never see the light of day, but the outtakes, phenomenal. And it was fun because it just kept going. I mean, season after season. It's an amazing show. If folks who are listening to this podcast or watching, I have no idea what we're talking about. You got to go look up whose line isn't anyway right now. Just hit, hit pause. Yeah. Don't close this window. Keep watching, but hit pause and go watch some clips. You're going to love every minute of it. And yeah, I'm glad you brought up Robin Williams because, you know, for the most part, they had like their rotating group of comedians, but on rare occasions, they'd bring in like Robin Williams on one episode. They had Whoopi Goldberg on one episode. And then they'd have other yeah. special guests popping in sometimes. And I want to ask you about this one, Brad. This is like, for again, for folks who haven't seen whose line, this might be the clip to watch. The day when Richard Simmons came on set. Okay, that's yeah. the reaction I was looking for. You know where I'm going with this. That's like one of the, that, that is far none. One of the top five moments of all time with that run of Who's Line. 
Yes. And, and some of us, me in particular, knew what to expect because I had done a show called Dream Maker. You did Dream Maker. That's right. His, his talk show. Dream Maker, his talk show. And uh, Richard would come in every morning and had to hug every camera operator and every sound guy. <laughs> and a few of them would try to avoid him and he would chase you. You might as well just, just, just take it, just take the hug because otherwise he's going to chase you around and hunt you down until he hugs you. And he wore a certain cologne and you just ended up smelling like Richard Simmons all day long. It was like, Oh my God. So when I heard he was coming on, I thought, Oh, here we go. <laughs> so yeah, it was, um, I don't remember exactly what happened. Maybe you do. I don't. Oh, I do. I do. They, uh, they did a, a village people inspired musical number with him. And uh, uh, he was he was not shying away from posing and rolling around the floor and being quite handsy with the uh, gentleman performing with him. Uh, that no. And it, it could have been anything. And he would have done that. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if I think he did a second skit also, that one I'm trying to remember. But yeah, but both of them were just absolutely hilarious. And he was that with Wayne Brady. Well, yeah, one of them was with Wayne Brady. Yep. Uh, and yep. it was with Wayne and Ryan for one of the songs. Or it might, it might have been a song. And then they did, um, the, the game where they're moving people, you know, where they're, they're the people moving. are still. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the moving people game. And, uh, so I, I believe Wayne and Ryan, uh, and I believe Wayne and Richard were the two carrot people being moved around by Ryan and Colin. And, uh, Wayne was having a tough time keeping a straight face in that one. Well, and, and the other guys knew that, that Wayne is incredibly ticklish. So, so they would purposely, especially moving him would be like, so even if he wasn't laughing, he was laughing because he's incredibly ticklish. And it was just amazing too, when, when just to be there, because I was closer to the band side with Laura, knowing that he's making these songs up. Yeah. So even when we, we come in, they rehearse the song styles, but not the words. So they know the certain song styles that they're going to do, but they, but he's making that up off the top of his head. It's, it's amazing, you know? And, and that's pretty fair too. I know, you know, it is improv comedy, so it's, but they're not going into this like completely blind. They need to know the rhythm of what they're going to be singing and that kind of stuff. So that's, that's all good. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I know for camera operators too, um, you know, you guys were not exempt from the comedy and the good times either. I know Ryan, especially would constantly run up and attack the camera guys and take control of the cameras Many um, times, many yeah, times. You, you were a victim of that. Many times, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. And uh, at the end, when they read credits, you know, they and they're scrolling the credits and they're reading. You know, my my name would get mentioned several times just because they thought it was Zerps was funny, <laughs> and in particular would would say, you know, Zerps. So. Yeah, we should t- mention too. We're talking mostly about like the '90s, early 2000s run. But whose line continues? I think I think it's actually just ending its final run uh, right now. In fact, I believe. Yeah, I just they um, they actually taped next door to the show that I do four days a week, and uh, I went next door and and saw them all, and, and uh, you know, a lot of the same crew, um, uh, producers anyway. You know, yeah, Dan Pat. And George Nijame and and those people are still there. Aisha, obviously hosting now. You know, yeah. I always feel like you know watching the two shows. As much as I love Drew, I feel like Aisha Tyler just brings a completely different energy. And really, you know, no, not disrespecting Drew in any way, but I really feel like Aisha gets the improv a lot more than Drew ever did. It felt like he was a little awkward doing some of that stuff. 
Uh, Drew was horrible at it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you said it, not me. That's fine. By his own admission, yeah. He's like, he's like, oh, I'm horrible, you know. <laughs> so he, I mean, he's a stand-up comic, but as far as improv goes, he was like, no. And by his own admission, so. But and Aisha, being a, an actress and a comedian, is much better at it. Much yeah. better at it, you know. I mean, I'm sad to see it go because there's no other shows like it. I mean, and there have been a few that have tried. Uh, there was another show that Drew did, in fact, where uh, I don't know if you know, worked on it or not, but there was another show Drew did that was more improv involving like green screens and things like that. And right. it just didn't have the same kind of energy. You know, like, like whose line really is like an American institution of comedy that just amazing. Yeah, I think that was in between when the one show had ended before they really brought it back with Aisha. Yeah. He was trying to I knew that I know they did a live live stage show in vegas and that they were then trying to bring back the show in a different form and you've done plenty of other comedy stuff as well and one other thing i want to talk about here as we start to wind this interview down is curb your enthusiasm you were there for a lot of curb your enthusiasm talk to me about being on that show that that's like a different Uh, environment for a camera op isn't it um that's where being an actor came in to play more than any other show i've ever done because the fact that they work off an outline and the entire show is improv. There's no script written. It's an outline. You're kind of part of it in covering it and shooting it. There was only two camera operators, myself, John Purdy, Bill Sheehy was the DP. And we actually kind of came up with the way to shoot the show, starting right out of the gate. But they're making it up. So you have to be part of the scene and almost like be part of the improv yourself and follow along with them to get the coverage and, and know where they're going and, and what's happening. And usually by about the fifth or sixth take, it starts falling into place. What I always found interesting was that if you're a guest star on the show, when you audition, if you audition, unless you're you know a bigger name, they just improv with you. Hmm. But you're never given the outline. You're just told what your scene is you know larry comes into your diner you there was a fork missing last time he was here you suspect he took it and go so many times actors guest actors on the show would walk up to us because i have an outline and the other camera operator has an outline they would say okay what happens next because there's they don't even they don't even know this what the story is we had several stars on the show Michael, uh, the one that sticks in my mind is um, Michael York. Uh, Michael York uh, was going to be with us the entire season. He had had a character, the through line. Larry was opening a restaurant and had Ted Danson and, and several celebrities that were going to be, you know, helping fund the restaurant. And Michael York was his first day and he walks in and, and, I'm getting a camera ready to the end and he's brought in a lot of his own wardrobe and uh, he says, good morning. And I'm like, Mr. York, nice to meet you. Uh, call me Michael. Very good. He goes, by the way, does anyone know who I'm playing? And I said, you're playing Michael York. <laughs> and he said, I'm what? <laughs> he had no idea. I said, you're playing Michael York. He goes, Oh, that's a stretch. <laughs> hey, Michael York. <laughs> well, I had no idea he was playing himself, but because they hadn't really told him, they you know they don't want any any preconceived notions. Any you know, a lot of people will go, well, this is what happened, so I'm gonna 
you know, make up a bunch of stuff before I get there. And they didn't want that. They wanted it to be organic, spontaneous. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work, a lot of fun. Now, Brad, very important thing we want to mention, too, as this episode is going along here, you were nominated for an Emmy Award, which is cool. Uh, and you were nominated for an Emmy for your work on the Ellen DeGeneres show. And, uh, you know, I see a lot of talk online about Ellen, and I don't really understand what's going on. I've never really watched the show that much, but there's like so much chatter online about how Ellen's this like horrible person behind the scenes or whatever. Um, I honestly have no clue. I keep seeing all these things. I don't know what's real, what's not. Uh, so I'd love to hear about your time working on Ellen and what she's really like behind the scenes. Yeah. Uh we actually had the pleasure of being nominated 10 times and won twice for Ellen, the cameras. The show had won, I don't know how many Emmys. Um, what I've noticed about comedians in general is that as gregarious as they are on the outside, a lot of them are very introverted and shy on the inside. And I think Ellen is is kind of a, private person, shy person for the most part, you know, a lot of people see the comedians and think the public persona is really who they are. And, and, and they're not Robin Williams was the same way. Robin Williams was very kind of, kind of quiet and shy when you were just talking to him. I had had the occasion on the Oscars to sit and talk to him for like 30, 35 minutes. And he was just very, very kind of quiet and shy, not the Robin Williams you see all the time. Ellen, pretty much the same way. There were producers on the show. You've, I'm sure you've probably heard a lot of the rumors and a lot of how it was. And they were very protective of Ellen. And I think concerned that that someone would say something to Ellen and give her an idea that didn't go through them. It, it's almost like they were paranoid and about what she thought of them. And as the show grew in popularity, that just exacerbated past the point of, of just normal workplace angst into an unhappy work atmosphere for the crew, for producers, PAs, you name it. And it, and it kind of came from, from the head down. So a lot of the, a lot of the, subsequent stories you heard uh about ellen she was just not very open now she was the first season when we first started because the show wasn't a hit you could joke around with her she would joke around with us but then as the show got more and more popular she became more and more reserved to the point that no one on the crew or anyone really had much interaction with her at all which is fine I mean, a lot of these shows, you you never have that type of interaction anyway. Um, but the executive producers on down, it was quite clear that they were, I won't say afraid of her, but afraid that their jobs might be in jeopardy and everything else. So I was there for... 11 and a half years when I left, I went off and did other shows, American Idol, Dancing with the Stars, all that type of stuff. Um, and the rest of the guys stuck around till the end. And it's just, I don't know how they did it because it, it was just, it was a, just kind of 
an abusive kind of fear-based place to work and and it shouldn't be that way i mean it should be fun i i i'm on a, a daily talk show now that is the antithesis of that everything is everyone is nice and gets along the hosts the crew the producers the executive producers it's it's a true family type situation the talk on cbs and it's a great show to work on you know and we have a great time ellen started out that way and then turned into um something completely different by the time i left so hope that answers your question so. i think it does yeah so can you tell my audience a little bit about what you're working on these days and also we should get a little bit of the talk in there too because you're working with jerry o'connell and that is the man on star trek lower decks so uh yeah, let's just, we'll start with promo and what you're doing, but then let's get into the nitty gritty about Jerry O'Connell. Okay. Um, the talk on CBS. Which is a fun daytime, show, by the way. Daytime talk show. Uh, Natalie Morales, Cheryl Underwood, uh, Akbar Abajamilia, uh, Amanda Klutz, and uh, what's that other guy? Oh, yeah, Jerry O'Connell. Yeah, that uh, little dude, yeah. All just as nice as they can be. I mean, it's a great, fun show to work on. We're live to the East Coast, live to you folks in the East Coast. And uh, and just a true family atmosphere. We have a great time. It's a fun show. Uh, I'm blessed to be there. Uh, we shoot four days a week. Uh, we do two shows on on Thursday, for which is Friday's and um, Thursday and then Friday's show. And then we're back in on Monday morning. Uh, Jerry O'Connell. What can I say about Jerry O'Connell? <laughs> Jerry is probably one of the nicest celebrities I've ever met. This guy will is just as down to earth as he can be. He's funny. He's just everything you would think he is. He is. And then some, uh, when he first came on the show, they said, we have a parking spot for you right outside. He goes, no, I'll park in the parking structure with everyone else. And they went, well, no, no, no. He goes, no, 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 no. I- I'm fine. You know, he drives this this old uh, uh, ranchero to work and uh, parks in the structure, walks in with the audience, comes out, sits with us, jokes around, have a great time, do anything for you. Say, hey, Jerry, would you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, he and I talk Star Trek because he is lower decks, you know, so he's a great guy. Matter of fact, it- it's funny, my uh this is a quick Jerry Jerry story. My family on my father's side are all farmers in Southern Illinois. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Twin Hoffels. You thought Zerps was funny? Twin Hoffel. Uh, Twin Hoffel Farms. And so um, they had T-shirts made that say Twin Hoffel Farms with a deer. And my cousin, Kathy Twin Hoffel, says, okay, I'm sending some to you and my wife. And we have three kids. And she sent one for Jerry O'Connell. Cause she's like, I just love Jerry O'Connell. I think he's the best thing ever. And I said, okay, I'll give it to Jerry O'Connell. So I go in the next morning and Jerry's out back. He's already like got a dress shirt on and we're out, out back behind the stage outside in the hallway. And I said, Hey Jerry, I got a present for you. He goes, what? And I said, my, my cousin sent you this t-shirt. And he goes, Oh my God. Rips his dress shirt off, puts, puts the t-shirt on. He goes, here, quick, take my picture. And so he takes his picture, takes another picture, and takes another picture. He goes, he goes, yeah, do, do they have Instagram? And I said, they're farmers. No, they don't have Instagram. <laughs> and uh, he, he said, 
I'll put it on my Instagram and they can look at and to send them those pictures. And, and I mean, that's Jerry O'Connell. I mean, he literally gives you the shirt off his back if you give him one. So you never really know what Jerry's going to do. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, uh, you know, WWJD. What would Jerry do or what won't he do? You know, um, and I think he, I mean, he brings a lot to the show and really glad he's there. So, but uh, yeah, he's a really nice guy. That's crazy. Really nice guy. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great to hear about Jerry. I'm hoping one day to get him on this show. Don't know how, but one day that's the hopes. Uh. (laughs) We go back to work. I'll tell him to call you and he will because uh, he's the king of social media. This guy on his own is doing social media for the talk, is doing social media for, uh, you know, just on his own. He's like doing interviews and, you know, he's always like on holding his cell phone up, you know. And doing stuff. And he's, he's the king of social media. He works it. He really does. So, I mean, I've been know, a fan I, of his since uh, my secret identity was on TV back in the day. And that he joined lower decks is like one of the greatest things ever. So yeah, hopefully you know, ha- have his people call my people work something out. Yeah. You know, when his my, his wife might have a little Star Trek connection too. Um, you know. Yeah. So I've heard, yeah, I don't know what, but yeah, some little maybe bit part or something, I guess. Yeah. Part in some, some new Star Trek thing. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's all rumors and hearsay, I think. But uh, you might get them both. You don't know. If only. <laughs> but uh, you know, speaking of rumors and hearsay, Brad, uh, I heard some information that I- I'd like to get some truth on. Uh, I read that you, at one point, I don't know if you still do, owned a barbecue restaurant. Is that true? Well, another hobby was barbecue, and I have I have uh, uncles and cousins that are in the barbecue business, so they kind of taught me. And so I was doing it out here, and I was doing it for friends, and then. Other friends would say, hey, can you do it for us? And um, so my wife and I, um, as kind of a side hustle, thought, hey, why don't we do barbecue catering? And I got a big trailer and everything else. And we did it for a number of years. What you forget is how much work it is. (laughs) (laughs) When you're we both have we both have careers. We're both working regular jobs, you know, and. If you have a big thing on Saturday and you have to shop it on Wednesday and prep it on Thursday and then you get home. I, I had a Friday show that I, I don't do anymore since COVID. Real Time with Bill Maher. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. that show. Yeah, yeah, I've heard I, of it once or twice, I think. I, I did that for like 15 years when it was live and then COVID hit and I, did, I didn't go back. I, you know, 15 years, that's enough. But um, so I'd get home Friday from from the live show and start cooking, be up all night then do the big gig on Saturday and clean up on Sunday and then go to work. Um, it, it just got to be too much. So we did do barbecue. Uh, I will still do barbecue occasionally for friends that say, Hey, I'm having a party. I have a couple of smokers and stuff, but it's just something we did on the side that I cooking is a hobby of mine. So, uh, you know, one of the many, but, um, uh, yeah, it was fun. We, we don't really do it anymore, but yeah, B and J, my wife, Jennifer, B and J's roadside barbecue. Um, and we had a lot of fun with it. Hired all of my kids, put them to work, you know, some nieces and nephews. And yeah. yeah, I just, I just love hearing these different stories about the different things you've done over time. Cause you've been on Star Trek. You've been an actor, you're a camera operator, you're a food catering person. Uh, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty fun path to have across your life. So, uh, it's very exciting to hear those different stories. Jack of all trades, master of none. So <laughs> I, I know exactly how you feel with that. Um, but 
Yeah, Brad, as we come to a close here, I got a few last wrap up questions for you. Uh, these are supposedly my lightning round questions, but they're never lightning round. So we'll see how you handle these. Uh, let's start with best day on a set and worst day on a set. And this could be performing or behind the camera. One of the best days on the set for me is we're in New York shooting Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I'm the only camera with Mel Brooks and Ann Bancroft. And it's literally the director, myself, the two of them, and an audio guy in a room. And to just sit there and get to chat for two hours with Mel Brooks was amazing. As a matter of fact, there was another time, best day on the set, when we were shooting here in Los Angeles, because he was with us all season. We were shooting at Cantor's Delicatessen. Yeah. It's a night shoot. It's 11 o'clock at night. I go in an area while they're, you know, lighting and doing all that kind of stuff. I sit in a booth by myself and up walks Mel Brooks, Rudy DeLuca, his writing partner, and Paul Mazursky. And I said, do you mind if we sit with you? And I'm like, sure, have a seat. <laughs> and just to sit there like a fly on the wall. While Mel Brooks and Paul Mazursky and Rudy Luca are chatting, you hear stuff like, oh, on that one show, Mel Brooks, oh, on that one show, um, the Barry, he was a good kid, good writer, Barry, Barry, Barry. And Rudy goes, Levinson? He goes, yeah, Barry Levinson. It's like, are you kidding me? Really? You know? And you just sit there and absorb you know, the legends that are sitting there, you know, at your table, you don't say a word because there's nothing you can say or should say, really, you should just absorb it. Worst day. I don't know. There's been, there's been some just long days and, you know, there was a shootout in the middle of the desert in, in August when it was 120 degrees and the camera failed and we had to wait for another camera. And it, those days, you know, when it's like, why but yeah well how about most memorable piece of advice that you ever received from someone that you still use and think about today actor friend of mine once told me and i think about this in this business of the three t's of tenacity timing and talent and the third one's the least important <laughs> so <laughs> That's perfect right there. That, that's like the true Hollywood experience right there. That's pretty brilliant. <laughs> Brad, the last question for the day here. What's the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? The best thing about being part of the Star Trek universe is just knowing that you had one very minute, small, atomic hand in something that will live forever. Think about the Star Trek universe, and I mean, it will just go on in perpetuity, and people be watching this long after, you know, we're gone. That I feel, and just uh, you have to be humbled and feel honored to even be allowed to be, you know, in a small way part of that. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think of it very often. I mean once in a great while um you you say oh yeah you know um i think it was like a month ago my son called and said 
turn on channel 11. And I turned on and there I am. I'm like, oh, okay, I remember, you know. But I mean, I don't think about it day to day, but you're like, yeah, that was a big deal. Still is. Be a part of that. That's kind of the truth of the situation here, too. And that's one of the reasons, uh, one of the many reasons why I do this show and what I hope to achieve with this show is the fact that folks like yourself, you know, they might not have had a name even as a character, but you're an important part of the universe. You are part of the Star Trek universe. And more importantly, too, it's what you do beyond it as well. And, and, you know, it's not just that you have these Star Trek stories to tell. It's also you've got your life story to tell and what you're doing now. And I feel like folks who are listening, you know, they're coming because they came for Star Trek, but they're learning about now being a camera operator and hearing your different stories about that. And that's, I think, an important avenue for folks, too. I mean, now they're learning about a profession they probably never really understood or thought of before. So, you know, I, I feel pretty privileged I'm able to do this show and talk Trek, even with the folks who didn't really do it for a lot of stuff, but have had a life after Trek and have made quite a name for themselves. And uh, I think definitely by looking at the awards on that wall behind you, you definitely made a name for yourself, Brad. Well, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And uh, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much, Brad. You know, I'm glad I got to talk to you. And uh, I, I got to be honest, since we started discussing the Richard Simmons Who's Line, I've been like fighting back a smile the entire time. <laughs> so I'm going to go watch that clip once we're done talking here. <laughs> yeah, I think I might have to, too. So, <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Brad. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. That's it for this week's show. Thanks again for checking out Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please follow Trek Untold on social media, where you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, among others, all at Trek Untold. Don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube for the video versions of this show at youtube.com slash at Trek Untold. And subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening to the audio version on. We always appreciate likes, shares, comments, thumbs up, ratings, and reviews, and whatever you can do to help spread the word about this podcast and inform other Trekkies about why they need to check this show out. If you're able to financially support this show, visit patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn about the different ways you can contribute to keeping this show going full speed ahead. Shout out to Scott Ray for bringing us this week's guest. If you'd like to book them for an autograph signing or personal appearance at a convention, Email Scott at scottray67 at AOL.com. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold, and as always, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.